right now there's like it's like the changing of the guard where there's all these baby boomers and they're up there in age and they're tired and like the business has changed from a technological standpoint like it's a different business than it was 10 years ago but more so from a staffing perspective of it's so hard to hire people all these guys are open to selling but they're not going to advertise it publicly and they want to keep it quiet and they want to do it internally and they want it to be smooth and easy and one of the best ways to get all that done is a in a franchise because it's a closed loop it's a closed network it's kind of this unique position for people in the franchise world Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, today in the show we have Brian Beers, the owner of 29 stores in the Midas franchise system. Brian talks to me about how he leveraged owner financing to acquire just about all of those 29 locations, why he has three separate bank accounts that he feels every business owner should have with what's called the profit first approach, and how do you even find a brand that has a bunch of franchise owners that are willing to sell to you via owner financing. We talk about all this and more. Hope you enjoy. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. This started from Twitter where, I don't know, we were on some thread and I saw you said that you own 29 auto repair franchises. And I was like, oh, you're a good prospect for the podcast. So what brand is it? Midas. Oh, okay, cool. And how long, like 29 stores. So how long ago was the first one? Yeah, so I'll tell you the story. So my my dad got into the business in 1976 uh, with one location and he got in it because his like, I think it was his cousin was up in Boston was in the Midas business. And back then it was all like, just doing exhaust, like the exhaust systems is before stainless steel and they'd rust out every three or five years. So it was like changing brakes, was changing your exhaust. And so it, they were making tons of money. And anyway, he got into the business one location. It was like the second or third Midas franchise in Philadelphia, because it was pretty, still pretty new at the time. And it was my dad and his grand, his dad, my granddad and his mom, so my grandmother. And uh, they had one location and they just started it. and. A couple years later, his brother-in-law joined and they grew it to about six locations uh, in the Philadelphia, Philadelphia suburbs. Uh, and then, you know, that was for years and the business changed over time to, to getting into other services and brakes and oil changes and state inspections and a little bit of tires and kind of the full service model. I joined in 2010 after college. And during that time, business wasn't good. 08, 09 was rough. My dad and uncle, you know, they've been in for 30 years and they were tired. And um, so anyway, I, I breathed new life into the business and we just started, after a couple of years, I, I learned the business. We started having some success and uh, we started buying up other guys like my dad who wanted to get out. So we bought two and one and two and one and opened another one. And anyway, we've continued to do it. And today we have 29 locations all in between Philadelphia, uh, North New Jersey and Allentown, which is about an hour north of Philadelphia. We, we just acquired those last week. So anyway, yeah, 20, 29 between uh, 
you know, those, those kind of three markets. So your first ones, like was your first acquisition, one of the six that your dad and his brother-in-law uh, were still operating? Yes. You know, we still have those six. And then we started kind of buying, starting to buy more in the market. And so um, in that case, it was just another two locations that the guy wanted out. That was the first and only time uh, we used a bank to, to finance it. Every location after that, we've actually acquired these with either we paid cash uh, or owner financing. Amazing. Okay. And I want to dive into that, I guess, beforehand, though. I mean, what, what was it like? Well, I guess, what did you study in college? To, to, and did that help you with uh, what you're doing right now? Yeah. So I studied entrepreneurship. I went to University of Miami down in Florida, uh, and they had a unique entrepreneurship program, which was really, it was just kind of a mix of business management, finance, uh, some entrepreneurship specific classes where you'd come up with a business plan and you know, kind of go through the stages. And then I had a minor in computer science. And uh, at the time I was, I'm still techie, but I was more techie then. And I was into to software development and building these like database driven web apps and some iPhone apps. And it's what, what I thought I wanted to do. Uh, and so all through college, I had a job, you know, this guy on South Beach, like making iPhone apps and stuff. And it was, it was cool. But at the end of the day, I was like, I figured, hey, I can apply some of this like technology and I, these new ideas to this kind of old school business. And that's what, you know, that, that's what we've done now. I've since, you know, the longer you're kind of out of it, the less like, the, you know, you get detached. So anyway, now my brother's joined. He kind of runs all of our IT and our technology. So. Okay, that's cool. All right. So you eventually decided that you'd rather go the franchise route. And I mean, what just growing up under your dad and you know that was obviously a big part of how your family was making a living did you ever think to start your own business or maybe you you said hey like midas is cool but i'm gonna buy another franchise you know why'd you stick with with midas itself yeah so i've you know thought about this over the, the years and it's funny how it feels like kind of ebbs and flows or sometimes you're like i don't know having your own business would be cool you own the brand it's all you and it's not like paying someone else through royalties. But on the other hand, like owning a franchise is a lot of good benefits. And for, it, it depends, they can vary hugely, tremendously, right? There's some franchises where you're basically buying yourself a job. Like they're going to tell you exactly how they want it done in this exact manner, right? You're running a Chick-fil-A and it's their model versus like in the Midas system. And I think a lot of, and I can't speak to other franchise automotive brands, but in the Midas system, it's a little bit different in terms of like, you know, we run our company, it's our company. We kind of market kind of in, in unique ways. We operate how we want. We sell services at prices that we want. You know, we run the company, but we, you know, we carry the Midas brand, the Midas name. We get the shared benefits of the marketing and, and all these things. But at the end of the day, it's our company and we operate it like it's, you know, it's the company's name's Prenlin Automotive. Uh, you know, it's a Prenlin Automotive Group. We just happen to fly a Midas flag is, is the way I look at it. And you know, versus another one where you're really super strict, um, we're not, Midas isn't like that. And so that's been, I, I do have a lot of influence there. You know, I'm also on a number of the committees across, you know, the country. We're the fourth largest franchisee. So, you know, there's a lot of things that we'll start and test and pilot uh, that we create on our own or that, you know, for the brand itself and then, you know, gets rolled out. So, yeah. So, all right. It sounds like, Brands vary so much in, in how strict they are and how hands-on they are with their operators versus sounds like Midas is a little more hands-off. And I mean, I've even, just for this podcast, right? Like I've had candidates for the podcast basically come back to me and say, hey, like 
I can't even go on this podcast. You know, my franchisor does not even want, even though like I'm not asking, right? I'm not asking for the secret sauce of anyone, but that's how intense it can be. And the one I'm thinking of Tim Hortons in particular for that person. But um, yeah, the other thing that's unique or, or benefit I've talked to people is like, they say, you know, why don't you open up your own brand or whatever? And so like we've opened up two new stores now, like ground up store and build them, but it went into spaces and opened up. And, you know, day one, the phone's ringing. Day one, we got customers coming in because they know the brand. You know, they're in the market already. They trust the brand. Like, there's this established just, like, knowledge from from day one that I, if I open up Ryan's Automotive, like, I would have to spend tons of money on marketing and social media and all this stuff to get attention for people to come in. You know, when you have a brand, people just, you know, they as long as they know it already and they trust it, it's one less thing I could work about, focus on for us, then it's, you know, it's all about the operations of how do we execute. And that's kind of what we're better at anyhow. I hear you. Now, I mean, that's like, there's strength in numbers with franchises. And yeah, I mean, the good systems, right? They just have that retail footprint that, you know, a mom and pop can't replicate that power. So I'm definitely a big proponent of that as well. Something I'm also a big proponent about is, so I have noticed that Basically, all the highest earning franchisees out there, right? You do it through multi-unit ownership, and and you're you know another example of that. And uh, I, I think within the franchise industry, sometimes there's marketing and rhetoric that is kind of just trying to sell people one franchise, and it, the expectations may be inflated. And all I mean by that is like I just think franchisors should be open about the fact that like, hey, like no one's ever going to make a ton of money for the most part from one location, regardless of the brand, right? You're never going to be a millionaire from one franchise location. And if there is a brand out there, please reach out to me because I will buy it. Um, But like for you, you've gone about it by acquiring existing locations where there's another strategy that I've noticed where some people will find emerging brands that have a lot of potential. You know, you can buy up a lot of territory in those days before there's all the locations are built. And then assuming they picked a good brand, right, then they they secured the territory where you can build 10, 20, however many locations. How have you gone about it? And just, you know, when you first started, did you expect the owner financing to go as well as it has? Uh, yeah, so the owner, for, so yeah, I'll talk about a little about the owner financing. I guess what, for us, what makes it kind of this unique situation is, is there's somewhat of this in ours, since it's an older brand, there's a lot of older owners and right now there's like it's like the changing of the guard where there's all these baby boomers and they're up there in age and they're tired and like the business has changed from a technological standpoint like it's a different business than it was 10 years ago but more so from a staffing perspective of it's so hard to hire people i can't hire anybody nobody wants to work like i get you know they're so tired and beat down and they just want like out and i think you know we hear that across the industry of small business I think in ours, even more so, it's happened. They don't have an exit plan. They don't have kids in the business. They don't have, people don't want to list it with a broker because they just like, it's a hassle and then it's out there in public and then their key employees find out and then they quit because they think it's going to be a big deal. And a lot of times people, all these guys are open to selling, but they're not going to advertise it publicly and they want to keep it quiet and they want to do it internally and they want it to be smooth and easy. And one of the best ways to get all that done is A, in a franchise, because it's a closed loop, it's a closed network. Like everybody knows each other, at least in our system. And it can be done relatively quickly with with owner financing because you don't have any banks involved. You don't have the SBA wanting to see tax returns from the seller and having to prove all these things. And they're like digging into his world. So 
it's kind of this unique position for people in the franchise world. You know, if you can become known, like, and trusted are the three things, right? It's actually very easy to become known because it's closed loop. And ours, they send out rankings of, you know, who the top performers are, who's buying stores, who's on the committees. You know, we would go out and I, I host uh, calls with other Midas franchisees on a, just a, we used to do it bi-weekly now. I haven't, I haven't done one in a little bit, but where I would just host a Zoom call and get a bunch of owners together to chat about, you know, best practices, challenges. I'd interview somebody just like this and just trying to, you know, A, establish myself as, you know, somebody who's widely known and trusted. And I think for anybody who's looking to like grow and acquire stores in a network, you, people have to know you and to trust you and getting out there is one of those ways. That's a pretty unique kind of shortcut for franchises compared to if you were trying to buy at mom and pops, there's no like forum for that. You know what I'm saying? No, for sure. I mean, it's just like you said, there's a network of owners, all of the same company. So it's just an easier way to, to kind of gain possibilities to acquire. And to sell to someone who's already franchisee, they're already, they're going to be approved unless they're like behind on the royalties or something. It's not like, you know, you find Joe Schmo off the street. He may not qualify for the business, even if he's willing to pay, you know, the price that you want. And so it's just, it's so much easier to sell somebody in network, right? So that's like, that's the advantage. And, and then we get into the seller financing. So I would say some quick math. I, I want to say of the 29 stores we have now, 20 of them, I've bought with owner financing. Some of them, I mean, the deal we just I closed last week, you can negotiate these things, a couple of things. It's totally flexible. Any price you want, down payment, monthly payment, terms, like collateral, the whole thing, you can do anything you want, which is the benefit of, which is the greatest thing for owner financing. So we find out what these guys want, whether it's how much money down or how much money per month, and then we negotiate those things off those factors. Okay. All right, I wanna dive into that. I think an important point you made before that, though, is on the changing of the guard. And that kind of reminds me. So last season of this podcast, we had someone named Zach Pennington on as a guest, and he owns Anytime Fitness franchises, and he's been acquiring the bulk of his locations. He was at about eight or nine when he when I had him on. And he mentioned something similar where, you know, Anytime Fitness, older brand, Tons of locations out there already, so it is tougher to find new territory and similar to Midas, which has like 2,000 locations, I believe. And because of the influx of boutique fitness brands like Orange Theory, F45, etc., the big box gyms have lost some market share because people prefer classes over just going and having to work out by yourself, basically. So what Zach noticed was that a lot of these Anytime Fitness owners, the older ones, hadn't transitioned to expand the offering where they are starting, you know, the franchisor has given them the ability to now do personal trainers, group exercise classes, et cetera. But the old guard just isn't used to that. They haven't put in the effort to do it. So they've underperformed and he's acquired them and is now, he turns them around fairly quickly and he's doing really well. So within Midas, I mean, is it more for you? Have you just seen like, it's just people kind of at the end of the road, like they're, you know, in their sixties or seventies and they're tired or is there something specifically culturally happening there? Yeah, no, it's, it's just old and tired. I mean, the, we did the seven-store acquisition in Jersey. That was our first forefront of Jersey. Just a guy who'd been in it since he was 18 years old and worked his way up from like a tech to a store manager to I think he bought his first store and then he bought another and another and he just, you know, worked his way up and he was just tired and wanted out and COVID had hit the stores, you know, in Jersey pretty hard and wasn't making any money. It wasn't fun anymore, right? And so that was one. The other one, we just bought five stores up in Allentown, similar story. Guy been in it for, since he was 20 years old, probably, or for 20 years, something that range. Anyway, in his 50s or early 60s and 
same thing, just tired and wants out. And another two, another one, another one. Yeah, the, almost all of them. I've only bought one that was from somebody who's a younger guy, but he, he moved, he relocated. He moved to a different state and he just, you know, we knew each other and it was just a, a convenience thing. But yeah, I think that for anybody who's, if you're looking to get into a brand, I, I don't know how you'd figure that out, but it'd be if, if there's a whole bunch of baby boomers in it and they're bitching about how hard it is to hire people, like uh, it'd, be, it'd be a good brand to, to be in if, if you can get in and solve it, right? Because people still got to work. People got to get their cars fixed. We just got to figure out how do we hire? How do we attract? How do we retain? You know, none of these things we, we are getting better at, you know, we still need to improve, but uh, we have at least a little bit more figured out than some other people, so. Yeah, no, that's uh, right there. It's not a bad strategy. Just a franchise with a lot of baby boomer o- owners, essentially. Yeah, I mean, they they got to get rid of it eventually. Like older brands, I think, would be a good save. If it's a just brand new startup brand, probably not going to have baby boomers in it, but some older ones, I, I think, would. Super fascinating. And so you said with when you approach them for owner financing. So, I mean, they don't even want to put it on the market strictly because this is the thing with selling a business, right? For most entrepreneurs, you do it once in your life, right? I mean, most people aren't starting multiple businesses. Um, that's just not the, you know, you read about it on Twitter and TechCrunch, these serial founders and all that. But vast majority of small business owners, they have their business and they sell it once. So they're not used to it. It's not something that they they know how to do per se. And so your interpretation is just, they don't want their employees finding out, they don't want it on biz buy sell and all over the internet. So they are much more inclined to find a buyer off market. First option, yeah. I mean, if they can't find anybody, yeah, they'll probably go and list it. But, you know, so for us, I mean, our strategy is to try to own the market geographically, right? We need five stores, we need a district manager, we need like, the closer they are, the more compact they are, the better for transferring employees, promoting employees, controlling advertising, control our customer experience, all that. So for us, geographically tight is important. I don't want like one store an hour and a half away, right? For our model, that doesn't really work. For for others, that might, but. Gotcha. So what we do, we have a, we have a map in our office with colored pins of all the stores based on uh, who the owner is. And, you know, my brother and I would sit down kind of every couple months and we would reach out to these owners and, you know, ask them, when do they want to sell? And if they want to sell, like we, we hope we're the first call. And a lot of times it's no, 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 no. And then eventually one day it's, you know, hey, yeah, I'm interested. And so outreach and follow-up is, is key on any of these if, if you want to be proactive. Uh, a lot of times people will tell us, even this one guy said, if hell freezed over, I'd still keep one of the stores and I mean, he sold, he sold them all. So, you know, anybody who's in sales or, you know, you don't take no kind of as an answer. It's a no for now type of thing. Um, and so. Exactly, man. So that's how we, we're just constant follow-up, constant relationship, constantly trying to add value to help them to say, hey, you know, even if you don't want to sell me your business, like, let me see how I can help you in terms of this is what we're doing to hire people. This is some new pay plans. This is some advertising. This is some pricing strategies, whatever. You know, I want to be, I want to be liked, you know, not like the enemy. So for sure, for sure. And so it sounds like the two levers for the owner financing you mentioned are, you know, cash down in the beginning and then what what the monthly payment schedule is going to be like. And then the number of months. Those are the three numbers that we negotiate off of initially, which is, you know, hey, we like to buy your business. We're willing to pay you. I don't know. This one deal we did, it was a big one. So it was like, well, I'll do a small one. So I guess small one was like three stores we bought and it was, hey, we'll give you and these weren't like performing, they were losing money. So we got a good deal on them. But I think it was like $50,000 down and $5,000 a month for uh, whatever, 
five years. I'm just making up some numbers here. So we would negotiate off kind of those three numbers, 50 grand down, 5,000 a month, five years. And then those payments would be inclusive of both principal and interest. And so we'd say, hey, at the end of the day, we're going to pay you whatever that is, what, $350,000, uh, $350, right? Inclusive of principal and interest. And then we would negotiate off that. So he'd say, all right, well, I want $75,000 down or four k a month or 48, four years or eight years. I don't know. We You can kind of like play with the numbers, but at the end of the day, we're trying to pay inclusive of interest, 350 grand, let's say, for this one or three or whatever stores. And then we back into what the principal loan amount would be, what the amortization would be, what the interest rate, and you come up with the, then the, the crazy like numbers down to the penny. But we found it's a lot easier to like communicate with people in terms of the actual money coming in and the money going out, like rather than, oh, we're gonna pay you $326,750 and it's gonna be a 4.275 interest rate and you know, you do all that math and it gets to the same numbers, right? Yeah. It's kind of like, we, we try to keep it simple and it's very effective. You, if we start the conversation that way with that negotiation, that's how we negotiate back. We can come to an agreement and then go to the attorneys and for all the documents. Well, yeah, that, that was another question is like, are they inclined to accept this model or are they saying to you right off the bat, hey, like, you know, my EBITDA is a hundred grand. I want uh, a three times multiple on that. And that's the number. Yeah. So like that's normally like our process is we get the P&Ls. We'll generally pay anywhere from two to three and a half times, but it really depends. But our number will be based off a multiple of, of EBITDA. Yes. Uh, unless they're losing money. Like we've bought a number of stores that are losing money and those we do asset purchases where uh, we just look at, you know, if it was a blank building and I had to put in six lifts and compressors and all this stuff, it'd be like 150 grand. That's what we're willing to pay. It's not a, there is no profit to multiply. So. Yeah. But what I guess I'm saying, so for the ones that are profitable, have any of the owners pushed back and been like, no, like I, I want it all upfront. Like whether you got to, whether you have the cash or you need to finance the acquisition, but I want all the money now and I'm out. Or are they receptive to? Yeah, we've we've done cash deals for one-off deals for you know less than two hundred thousand dollar ones, but the big ones, no, the big deals, they don't. We finance them. Plus, for them, there's a couple benefits to the seller. Number one, the biggest benefit is deferring capital gains. So if they they sell to us via an installment sale, which is owner financing, instead of paying that big chunk of capital gains that they're going to owe all up front, they get to break it up into installments in the same schedule that they're collecting payments from us. And so if it's over 10 years or 15 years, I mean, I'm doing some of these deals, 15 year payments, they get to spread those over 15 years. And then over that time, they're collecting additional interest from us that otherwise we would have went to a bank and would have been paying the bank. And so they get some good benefits on the tax side too. Plus a lot of these guys, like I'm going to give a million dollars or whatever, we're going to buy you know a couple, a bunch of these stores for. Like, what are they going to do with the money? They're going to stick in the stock market right now and it's going to like fluctuate like crazy. They're going to put it in a checking account and it's going to earn nothing. You know, most of these guys aren't into like syndications and all these like alternative ways of, of making money. And so for them, like selling the business and having a note payment on something they know and trust and they understand is very appealing compared to the alternatives. So, and they trust that we're going to perform. We're one of the top performers in, in the brand. They trust that we're going to make the stores profitable and have cash flow and you know, we're good for the money. So that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I mean, the, the tax benefits, I never really thought about that. 
I could see that just being a lot more attractive, especially. Yeah, because they have no basis. Like most of these guys that own these things for years, they have almost no basis. So almost the entire sale is becomes a, a taxable event. And so, you know, by spreading it out with us, it does help them. Yeah. And I mean, when they when you do complete the transaction where you, Brian Beers, you're the new owner of the Midas locations, are they just completely out? Or do they yep. stay involved at nope. in, we any want, we, don't, we, we want nothing to do with them. Because <laughs> okay. uh, a lot of times the way they did things are not the way we do things. And so for some transitions, it's super it's super easy. Like the employees, like we've, I mean, even the Jersey acquisition, we had, I don't know, 40 maybe employees. We, you know, became our employees the next day. And uh, over a year or almost a year later now, I would say 80% are still with us and they're crushing it. Like we've doubled the sales in many locations. All the guys are making more money. We've hired more people. We've upgraded equipment and image and, you know, they're, they're happy. Like a lot of times when the guys want to get out, like he's deferring things, they become disengaged, you know, the employees start to feel it. And we come in and we, you know, we've of course invested all this money into buying it. And so we're ready from day one to like hit the floor running with, getting them staffed up. Like, you know, we do a lot of local advertising ready to roll. We got a bunch of new technology things that are in the works, uh, but we get them excited about. We're looking at doing a call center. We're looking at doing digital inspections, looking at a number of things to shift. And with the more stores we buy, the easier it becomes to invest in some of these, these bigger projects. And so a lot of times it's a little hairy during the transition because, you know, people don't like change, but once they kind of get into our way of doing things, uh, you know, we, we have some good success with it. So that's amazing. And are you generally able to finance these, you know, the monthly payments to the owners from the cash flow of the stores? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We we structured all to kind of been this like domino effect where we you know, we started with the two and then we bought from a bank and then cash flows from that bought the next one and then we just continue to roll the, the cash flows to buy the next one. Even the seven ones in Jersey we had to put I don't know, 300 grand down to buy those. And all that was funded by other stores that we had previously bought. And same for these five we just bought, it was funded from a source we had already had. So we, you know, I'm a strong believer in compound interest and investing in your business is one of the best returns you can get. And some of these deals, I mean, we can get a 400%, 500% return on our down payment versus taking that out and put it into anything else and getting a 15 or a 20 maybe. But um, yeah, that's uh, that's night and day difference right there. Yeah, so our, our philosophy in current growth mode, which we are, is in reinvesting as much money as we can back into buying the business and continue to grow. And then, you know, eventually we'll go more into harvesting stage, as, as you could say. But for now, yeah, it's all been self-funded and the cash flows of the business pay the debt payments, you know, pay the profits, pay everything. So we've, um, you know, we've designed it that way. And it's you and your brother are effectively running the organization? Yep. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, we bought out my uh, all, all the new stores that we bought, starting with store number seven, were owned by my brother and I in a new entity. And so all, all the new growth had been owned by me and him. And then we also used cash flows from that to then buy out my uh, my dad and uncle in the first six there, uh, also on a, on a finance note. So. Okay. Yeah, and I asked that because I think a lot of people, you know, and myself included, right? Like I heard in the beginning of this conversation, you own 29 Midas's, but the reality is, you know, you are doing strategic owner financing. You're paying off these notes, you know, kind of simultaneously from different stores and kind of stockpiling the cash flows from all of them to maybe pay off the newest acquisition. So how do you think about basically you and your brother paying yourselves from it while also knowing when you should be reinvesting into the business? to further more acquisitions. Yeah, so we're like, 
we're pretty conservative. We understand it's cash is the lifeblood of a business. Uh, we follow the profit first model. I don't know if you're familiar with that by Mike Michalowicz. Uh, check it out. He's, he's an author. He's wrote this book called Profit First. And anyway, it talks about how you set up these multiple bank accounts. You have your operating account, your tax account, your profit account, and he had some other ones too, but those are the three we follow. And so basically money comes into the operating account and then we, we move it out every single week. We auto transfer monies into a profit account and into a tax account. And first we figure out the taxes. What do we get to like income taxes, you know, quarterlies or whatever, property taxes. We own a number of our buildings and a number of the buildings we have to pay taxes all in one shot, which could be your 20, 30, $40,000 tax bill for the year in one shot. So we like allocate money throughout the year, transfer it into these accounts. We also have some additional fees we have to pay Midas and some other tax bills. But anyhow, basically the strategy is you have all these one-time bills and most of them uh, come in like the springtime tax season is like, you know, you owe your taxes at the same time you owe all these property taxes and these additional Midas uh, invoices. And so like, you know, it could be $400,000 or whatever the number is out, you know, in a single, single week. And if you don't plan for that, right, you're like totally screwed. And so, you know, we have this strategy where we, we estimate that number, we allocate, and then every single week, we're just kind of squirreling away this money. And then when these big bills come due, we're kind of taking it out of these buckets that we've already earmarked the money for. And so then we're, we're good. And we do the same thing for the kind of the profit account where we're transferring money into these profit accounts. The business continues to operate on its operating cash. And then from that profit account, we then determine what to do with it. Whether we say, hey, we're going to take it out, do a distribution and go invest it into, um, you know, we invest in like syndications and do hard money lending and some other things. But we, we say, hey, we're going to pull out and go do that. Or we say, hey, like we got this store on the horizon. We think we're going to need X amount of money for it. We don't take any money out. We let it to get to that number that we think we're going to need. And then once we cross that threshold, then we can look at that distributions. Um, and so we're we're on the same page for everything, my, my brother and I. And you know, even at this stage, like we got a couple more acquisitions we're going to work on. But then from there, I think our next goal is to really focus on growing these things because they could we could I don't want to say double our revenue, but we could we could probably increase to fifty percent. Because a lot of the stores we bought and have just been beat down for a number of years, and we're you know it takes time to get them going. But once you get them going, they can do very well. But I think sometimes if you focus too much on grow, 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 and you're adding all these stores, but then we're also adding all these fixed overhead and, and liabilities. Where at a certain point, it's like all right, we, we've got a good like infrastructure. We've got district managers, office managers. You know, we've got all the stuff in place. Uh, now we got to focus on how do we continue to grow this thing with you know and adding sales without adding any more overhead becomes a lot more profitable. So, yeah, and I mean, when you see a struggling store, you know, this is always my question for any franchise owners. Like, sometimes there might be a reason it's struggling. Like, maybe the market can't support the location, or maybe there's too much competition. Whatever it is, what makes you confident that like you can go in and turn these around? We've done it a bunch of times, so that's why we're confident. <laughs> yeah. What what it? It's always the people. Like we fix cars, but we're in the people business, uh, and so. I don't want to say it's always the manager, but it's always the manager. And so if a store's not performing well, it's the, whoever the leader is, you know, in some cases it's, he's a good guy. He's just not ready to be a store manager, right? Maybe he's got a good selling experience, but he's, he's not good with the people. So like we would maybe put him into more of a sales role and less of a, like a managerial role. Sometimes, I mean, I get this funny story. We bought this stores in, in Philadelphia and it was doing about a million dollars, which is not bad. And day one, this guy uh, rolls up 
in this and he's in this pickup truck and he was like severely overweight and he pulls out and his pants are like falling down his like butt showing and like <laughs> you know and he's like got stuff all of his shirt and he tells us like he, he's quitting in a month this is like day one we just bought the store he's quitting in a month and uh he like he would go to the casino every night and then sleep in his car and then come in and anyway so he quit so that worked and we, we moved one of our best guys in there and we doubled the sales the next year so like it's amazing that it's 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 all the people and so um yeah anyway we we uh, our strategy and philosophy is we can build a solid bench of people like who are you know working in our organization and the, the number twos and that you know when there becomes an opportunity whether it's a new store or somebody who's just you know not cutting it you know we can promote from within and then uh somebody has this new opportunity and then they you know usually can increase the sales 30% pretty pretty quickly as long as we've got good technicians there that's the other component but if we have somebody who can sell and is good with customers it's easier to afford some good technicians right but we can have all the best guys in the world who can fix anything but if the manager's no good and, and can't present it and can't educate and communicate doesn't it doesn't matter yeah, I, I've just found with the multi-unit owners, when they have these growing organizations like yours, it, it typically is easier to to bring in people because it's not just like you're a one or two store owner, you're a whole organization where there's a lot of room for upward mobility as the whole system for you grows. But how do you structure, because I've seen it varies from, from brand to brand, right? Like how do you structure kind of just the leadership, meaning does each Midas location get a manager and then every a cluster of Midases have like an area manager? You know, how, how does that go? That's exactly it. So every store has, has a manager, generally assistant manager. And then usually we have one district manager per six or seven-ish shops who then, oh, you know, he's like kind of the direct responsibility and he helps with hiring and customer issues and employee issues and maintenance and all those things. So currently we have five of those district managers over the 29 stores. And then they all, you know, currently report to me. Uh, and then on the office side, we've got a CFO and then almost our entire office staff is remote in the Philippines. We have our controllers in the Philippines. We've got accounting, HR, AP, AR, bookkeepers, almost all remote. So we can add new markets and bring on new stores. And like, we can just, we just hire another person to help with all the, the bill pay. So that's amazing to have that much GNA remotely like that. That's pretty impressive. And labor on like a per store basis, how many employees do you think to allocate per Midas location? Yeah. So our average is six. It's usually two managers, like a manager, system manager, and four technicians is kind of our typical model. Our busier stores, uh, that number is more like eight, where it's three and five or three and six, so eight or nine. The slower volume stores might be like one in three, so like four. But but even those, we're looking to, as the sales start to grow, we add people. But there's a direct correlation. Like some of the highest volume shops in the country could have 20 people working at them, you know, and then they work in teams and they like, it's a business where it's kind of a per a revenue per employee model. And so if you want to double your sales, you're going to generally need double the amount of people to work there versus it's a lot harder to get double the amount of sales per person out of them just because people have a, have a limited capacity of how many cars they can work on per day. So. Yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure. That's just something I'm always thinking about. And I think a lot of the people I speak to who are interested in franchises like to know about is like, uh, you know, how labor intensive is it? We looked at um, years ago when we were thinking, all right, we want to diversify a little bit. We were looking at some fast food franchises. We looked at um, Little Caesars 
And we went up, we visited a couple locations with this guy. And they had this one, it was an underperforming one. And he did like 20 people, like minimum wage, 20 little people. Little Caesars? A Little Caesars. Now on, on not, not at the same time, but like it was all part-time kids. It was like this Rolodex kind of where, because I, I think so many people would call out where they'd just be like, all right, next, next, next. And like, it sounded like hell. So I was like, we're not... We're not going to have a store with 20, 20 kids because nobody can have overtime. And it's just this constant just machine of making pizzas. So anyway. Yeah. I mean, for some brands, man, it's really a revolving door. So that that's why I asked the question because you do have to think. And I mean, you want those types of things. Like they definitely don't show up in the franchise disclosure document. But it's just something as an owner, you got to realize like mentally, are you prepared? to deal with that. Because if not, it's not going to be a fun job. Even if you're making money, it's still going to be uh, pretty stressful. So what's your ultimate goal, man? You, uh, you know, 29 minus is in, you just talked about, you know, how maybe you were thinking at one point to diversify brands, you know, do you see just more minus in the future, more brands? What's the end goal? One of our goals is to be proud, not to be the biggest, but to be proud of the stores we own, right? That they perform well, that they're clean, that they like, processes that are similar at least. And so for us, you know, quality is kind of more important than quantity. Uh, and so kind of the next phase is going to be, you know, like I said, I, I think we can fill in, there's a couple gaps. I think we can fill in maybe three or four, maybe five more s- stores kind of in the footprints that we already operate. But then from there, I think our next focus is going to be say, all right, now let's get these things. Like we, our average is about a million, 1.1, you know, our best stores do about 2 million, our worst stores might do 600,000. And so we have, and we have a lot of stores in the like 1.3, 1.4 range. And so there's a big opportunity to get, you know, all these guys doing 700 up to 1.1, 1.2, get the 1.1s up to 1.4s, get a couple of the stores that are currently at 1.5 to 2. Like there's these kind of steps that they go through uh, in terms of how they operate. And we're not saying we got to like go out to this whole new stratosphere. Like we just got to get everybody up a level or two from where they're currently at. Uh, and then we're already doing in the organization. And like we can significantly increase, you know, profitability and hire more people and, you know, just make life better. So that's kind of our, our next phase. And for me, I mean, I, I got a lot of stuff outside of this. I've got my own podcast called Business with Beers that I, I bring on guests. It's a to great talk. name. Yeah, I wish, I, wish uh, I, I branded the wolf to, to something like that. <laughs> so anyway, I'm all about uh, for the past year or so I, I've launched it and just trying to talk to other entrepreneurs about building, you know, multiple income streams, whether it's, you know, through business growth, owner financing, through real estate syndications. I'm invested as an LP, as a passive investor in terms of real estate syndications. I think it's a huge opportunity. Um, invested into other things, Amazon, I can, this Amazon store, except we do the hard money lending. I've got kind of these, a number of different streams. Now I'm really focused on, you know, what are things that I can, how can I leverage time and relationships to, you know, kind of create some other income streams. And so um, that's kind of my personal goal is focusing on those things rather than saying, hey, let's open up, but let's take on more debt. Let's take on more leases and physical things. Hey, how can I have a, have a low overhead business like lending or whatever it is. And so, um, but prior to that, it's kind of getting a solid management team in place who can so help the business kind of be more self-sufficient without me as well. So. No, definitely, man. That all makes sense. That's super cool. And just so, you know, listeners are aware in Midas's most recent FDD. So Brian, you're for the numbers you're throwing out, you know, the average, so they break it down to quartiles, like top quartile, second quartile, the 
the average revenue for owners in the top quartile, which is this of 228 outlets that they got this average from, is about 1.2 million. So you're in the top 25%, uh, at least on the average. And you know, you mentioned some stores that are performing well above that. So that's just something for people to know that Brian's kind of up there in the upper echelon of operators. And 40% are single store operators as well. And so it's a significant amount. So there's a number of people who, you know, that's it's one store. And for sometimes like if you're in a market, you can start buying up the ones and ones and ones. And for somebody to start, if they wanted to go into a market and, you know, kind of consolidate it, that's easier than, you know, there's some other markets like Philadelphia now that, you know, me and a couple other guys, we own them all. Like it'd be very hard for somebody else to, to get established versus they go down to a, some random city, I don't, I don't know, somewhere in like Alabama or Birmingham or someone. And there's maybe there's like five, but they're all owned by five different guys. There's a higher likelihood that some one person one day could own all five. And so, um, you know, it's something to note. Yeah, it's a great strategy, man. I mean, even just, I, I really like the, the general strategy of just find an older brand that uh, has a lot of older owners. I mean, there's going to be opportunity. And that's really, I mean, on Twitter, I feel like it's taken off in the last couple of years of just the small business acquisition wave that's coming in outside and inside of franchises. It's just, there's so many people who are coming to the end of the road, just like you've said within Midas. So yeah, man, well, look, this has been awesome. Uh, I'm really glad I was able to have you on. Where could uh, folks who want to follow you, what's the best place, whether it's Twitter or your website or anything like that? Yeah. So Twitter, it's Brian Beers with an I, B-R-I-A-N-B-E-E-R-S, like the drink, uh, or brianbeers.com, LinkedIn, Brian. It's, it's the same name everywhere. Uh, and then my podcast, Business with Beers, is a weekly episode too. comes out every Monday. And like I said, I get a lot of, a lot of guys on and talking about, we talk about a lot of real estate. We talk about buying businesses. So we talk about a little bit of franchising, not not too many franchising yet, but you know, I talk about it from kind of my angle, a lot of things, and so. Um, of course. Anyway, uh, for anybody in, in the business world, I think that would be um, that'd be a great way. Like I said, I'm always looking to help people and just kind of expand my knowledge to help as many people as I can too. So. Sweet. Well, uh, yeah, we'll plug those resources in the show notes so you can all check it out. Uh, but yeah, thanks again, Brian. Uh, this is awesome, and uh, we'll talk soon. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen.